This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's a royal dust-up. The latest rounds of allegations and counter-allegations between palace sources and Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, erupted this week. Now, much of this was sparked by the news that they gave tell-all interview to Oprah Winfrey. They have long-standing grievances against the British press and Buckingham Palace about the way they, particularly Meghan, have been treated. We know that they will not be returning to royal duties. Well, now palace sources have shot back, leaking allegations that there were former co- formal complaints against Meghan for harassing and bullying some members of her staff, allegations that Harry and Meghan say are falsehoods intended to smear them. Are you following all this? And this, as a recent Angus poll found more than half of Canadians no longer find the monarchy relevant. And of course, this is also playing out as Prince Philip is in the hospital, though thankfully we learned today that his procedure was successful and uh, he's doing better. So, what do you think of all of this? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Alison Eastwood, Editor-in-Chief of Hello Canada. Hello, Alison. Hello, Libby. So, uh, what's your take on all of this? Well, um, there's so many factors at play right now, Libby. Um, you know, you, you just managed to encapsulate most of them in a, in a short space of <laughs> time. Um, so congratulations on that. Um, it's, you know, yeah, obviously this is concerning and disappointing all around. I'm sure from, you know, Harry and Meghan's perspective, as well as the palace's perspective, um, Yes, the, I mean, the Times is possibly the most prestigious newspaper in Britain. So, you know, this isn't coming from the Daily Mail or the Sun. Um, it's coming from what they call a quality newspaper. Um, and so, you know, when they, when they print stories like this, people pay attention and it has to be taken seriously. And the palace has taken the unprecedented step of issuing a statement saying that um, their HR team is looking into the circumstances and conducting a full investigation. They have a dignity at work policy, which they've had in place for a number of years. It does not and will not tolerate bullying or harassment. Prince William, as many royal watchers know, is you know, one of his big um, platforms is, is anti-bullying and mental health um, so this must be very concerning for him as well. That said, um, of course, Harry and Meghan's team is um, is denying the allegations and saying that you know they themselves are being harassed. So it, it's you know it's very much a he said she said situation right now um, between the two camps, and it's very sad that you know they're being perceived as two camps. Um, but as as you mentioned, there's the the Oprah Winfrey tell-all interview coming out, and um, there are tantalizing peaks at it that seem to suggest that, um, you know, comments are being made about the royal family that aren't particularly positive. Whether I'll bet. That's, you know, whether that's the spin that they're giving us in order to make everybody watch, we don't know yet. You know, I think it will be one of the most watched TV interviews ever. Um, I'm, I'm also, sure I'll certainly be watching. I'm sure it will be. I have a couple of questions, Alison. <laughs> so one of them, uh, one thing that I find strange, I can see that uh, certain members of the palace would leak this as a counter to what they think is coming out. But in terms of the palace saying they're going to investigate, isn't isn't that, you know, uh, closing the barn door after the horses <laughs> have, es- has, have escaped? They're not. You yeah, know, well... 
it certainly does beg the question of, of you know, why it wasn't looked into at the time, um, you know, because supposedly this happened in 2017, uh, 2018, and um, including on, on their royal tours and... Um, but there are various explanations for that, and at this point, I, you know, I just I don't know that we can get into <laughs> who's, you know, who's, uh, who's uh, where the truth really lies. You know, perhaps it's somewhere in between. I would say it's a very different climate now. Um, people are very sensitive to accusations of bullying, and of course, it is something that Harry and Meghan have, um, you know, have talked about a lot and it is also one of their platforms and they've spoken a lot about, you know, cyberbullying and how Megan herself has been a victim of that. Um, so, I mean... And there's, I mean, there's, uh, there, there's the whole issue of race because Megan has been suggesting that she's the victim of all, in all of this and that uh, racism is at the root of it. Um, yeah, I mean, that has certainly been a, a sort of a, a motif throughout, and that has to be taken seriously, um, because we know that, you know, they were certainly, well, she was certainly victim of a lot of, well, essentially hate speech and, and trolling and that type of thing, um, and, and some of that did, you know, was racist, and that should never be tolerated. And, but I think that that's a completely separate issue here. Um, however, you know, she has been quoted as saying in the past that, you know, she felt as though it was uh, not an environment that was conducive to respecting diversity. Um, so whether she will address that on Sunday remains to be seen. I would expect that she will. But in terms of the palace, you know, keeping quiet about um, concerns like this. Um, I mean, they did come from Prince Harry's <clears throat> then um, communications secretary. Um, he uh, purportedly then moved, once nothing was done about these allegations, he moved to work for Prince William instead. Um, so it's very difficult to really know you know, except that how I'm could sure, we possibly you know, know? Megan was new. Megan was new to the royal family. Um, you know, I, I've, you know, she worked in Toronto for seven years, and we didn't really have any reports of that type of behavior. You know, in her workplace from her, but. Um, yeah, but uh, she worked in a very uh, different context. Alison, I'm I'm just going to grab a call here from Noel in Scarborough. Hi, Noel. Hi, Libby. How are you today? Fine. How are you? I'm great. Doing great. I'm driving all the way back from Colburn. Okay. <laughs> so, and uh, firstly, I want to let uh, firstly I want to just let you know that I'm not a racist. Okay. <laughs> and I'm from India. I right. came to Canada in 2008. Okay, what about Harry and Meghan? That's what I want to tell you about. And now, when I came to... Just, I'm, just give me an example. When I came to Canada, I came to the mind frame that I'm coming to... Come, Canada didn't call me. I'm coming to Canada. So I follow the rules and regulations in Canada, right? Just simple. Next point, go to Meghan and Harry. Meghan knew who she was marrying, right? She, she is... As a kid, she's been... Re- reading about the palace and doing lots of uh, things. So she knows who she was marrying. She knows she has to fo- follow protocol. So what I feel personally, I think she, she is, she's on the wrong side because she should understand that you don't get in, into the palace and, uh, uh, and flounder your rules around, right? You got to do what you have to do as, 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 as a duchess. So you have to, you, you have to certain, follow certain rules, regulations, and etiquette. Um, now you see what I, I'll tell you what what happened yesterday in, in the CBC news at one secondary school uh, by Benjamin uh, Warren. His, his school has no, been no. Right? I'm cutting That's you wrong. off because I don't have to adjudicate the CBC news. Take it up with the CBC. Uh, but uh, thanks for your call, and I appreciate your perspective. And and Allison, this has become 
quite venomous. You know, you were saying that yeah. this uh, these allegations reported by the Times considered a quality newspaper. Uh, the Mirror is considered a, a tab, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, th- there's Piers Morgan that a lot of uh, Canadians are familiar with, and he is just venomous uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. in his takedown of Meghan Markle. And and I have to say that, um, you know, I have no way of knowing uh, all these things she's talking about, but she was catapulted from being, you know, a fairly successful actress, but, you know, a regular person to being, you know, one of the wealthiest and most famous people in the world by virtue of a marriage. So it is kind of hard to see her as a victim. Um, well, again, I mean, it, it's hard to kind of throw everything into the same box and, you know, and everything gets, gets mixed together, you know, in terms of the how Megan was victimized, um, you know, the, the online trolling, those, those things all seem to get into the mix in terms of then her, you know, what that made her unhappy in her role. It was the fault of the palace, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there's just so much gray in all of this. There's really no black and white, no matter how people try to depict it. But, you know, I would I would agree that, of course, Megan knew what she was marrying into. But I, I feel as though, you know, she had probably seen the, the institution of the monarchy modernizing and refreshing a little bit, you know, in no small part due to uh, Prince William and and also Harry, um, and that you could attribute to Diana, their mother. So she may have well thought that she could sort of bend the, you know, this longstanding institution um, a little bit and, um, you know, and perhaps have a different role than she ultimately discovered she was able to have. Uh, what, just sort of since, I mean, obviously we we cannot know what the truth of this is. I mean, the one thing that is for sure, it's piquing a lot of uh, people's in- interest. Is that it good or bad for the monarchy, this soap opera aspect? Well, I mean, it certainly does hark back to the days of, of Diana, um, <clears throat> you know, the difference which which didn't reflect well on the monarchy at all. I mean, the difference being that Diana divorced a member of the royal family, whereas Harry effectively divorced his family. Um, so, and I, uh, but of course, that's why he did it. He still blames, I think, the family in some way for uh, Diana's death. Um, and... Um, sorry, what did you ask me? <laughs> uh, like, how does this reflect on the royal family? And I think it's interesting what you point out. I mean, he has, uh, even when he was younger, and you don't want to hold something that somebody does when they're young and silly, you know, but th- that he's done things to kind of thumb his nose at, at the family, and he's got issues. So this sort of seems in line, not to mention that his great uncle also abdicate actually abdicated as king in in favor of of a divorced american woman yeah it's uh, i mean it just makes me and i was even you know saying to my partner last night i'm at, i'm very sad for the queen i'm sad for the queen and for philip and for charles and for william um and also for harry and meghan i mean this you know this is very difficult for especially for harry um, but now Megan, because now she's uh, facing these allegations. And, you know, let's not forget, they've already faced down um, like two lawsuits, or they've, they've won two lawsuits um, against um, what they have construed as defamation in the press, and it's been upheld. So, um, you know, the, the jury is very much out on, you know, this new set of allegations. But it's it's just a very sad situation. The, you know, Prince Philip is in hospital, as you mentioned. He just had heart surgery at 99 years old. Um, this is really the last thing that, that the Queen needs. She's been very indulgent with Harry. Um, you know, we just saw him talking about their relationship in the, the James Corden interview. Um and they rode around on a bus and he opened up and uh, and said that they, they do Zoom calls quite frequently and it certainly sounds as though they're on good terms. Whether that is the case uh, this week, we don't know. Uh, let's take a call from Kelly in Toronto. Hi, Kelly. 
Hi there. Go ahead. You're on the air. I just find it ironic that uh, Meghan Markle, who left the royal life to get out of the spotlight, supposedly, continues to put herself and Harry back in the spotlight on her terms. And, uh, you know, because I think they're becoming really irrelevant. Okay, Kelly, I'll run that by Allison. Thanks for your call. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> they, they left the royal family. I, do, I don't think the idea was to stay out of the spotlight, Allison. What do you think? <laughs> no, what they wanted was privacy, uh, which many celebrities want, of course, and um, which, which is a bit different from them not wanting publicity. Um, so all of us would like to control the narrative surrounding our own lives, right, um, and not have you know, all these untruths plastered about us all over the, you know, the tabloids. And what they didn't like was not, you know, just not being able to control that. And, of course, you're very much subject to that when you are a public figure and the public feels as though they own you, as they do with the royal family. So that's what they wanted to escape. Um, Obviously, they did not want to elude the celebrity aspect of, uh, of everything that came with their fame. Okay, we're um, we're starting to run out of time. Do you think this will have an impact here in Canada and the way that people view the monarchy? Um, well, I mean, obviously, you mentioned the Angus Reid poll, and we do our own polls at Hello Canada every year, and of course, you know, it's we're um, it's, it's somewhat of a favorable climate when you're looking at Hello readership because we cover the world a lot, but. Um, uh, about 70% of our readers at the beginning of this year still believe very strongly in the future of the monarchy. Um, as you mentioned, the population as a whole in Canada, perhaps it's not so reflected, um, especially in Quebec. Uh, and I, I don't, I think that, you know, this is, this is a, a, a bit of a crisis, yet another one that, that the royal family will have to weather. It's a storm. And um, I feel as though they'll come out of it. It, it. it is a shame because Harry and Meghan, you know, were, were such great representatives of the fresh new face of royalty. And um, the more they put themselves at odds with the royal family, um, you know, that, the harder that is for, for the Queen. And uh, anything else you'd like to leave us with? <laughs> um I don't know. I mean, I, we're just we're just waiting to see, um, along with everybody else, um, you know, talking to our colleagues in London, just uh, to see if we can, you know, get any information about what's coming out of the palace and and, and why now. Um, um, I would say, I don't think this is any sort of intentional um, campaign on on the part of the royal family. Um, and I guess we would just have to wait and see uh, what comes out in the next few days. Okay. Interesting times, Libby. Interesting times. Allison Eastwood, <laughs> Editor-in-Chief of Hello Canada, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye. Uh, bye-bye. Okay, uh, we are turning now to uh, far more serious things and, of course, having to do with the pandemic and our vaccine rollout and particularly how it's going to affect our older Zoomer population. So late yesterday, NACI, that's the National Advisory Council on Immunization, dropped a bombshell in its guidance on the vaccine rollout. It was the second one this week. The advisory body recommended that the interval between the first and second doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines be stretched to four months. Now, it's a decision that would allow more people to get first doses sooner, but many epidemiologists and other scientists consider it very risky because the evidence just is not there. Dr. Brad Waters is Executive Vice President of Science and Research at the University Health Network, and he's called this a population-sized experiment. I reached him at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. My initial reaction was a little bit one of surprise. You've called it a population-based experiment. Well, it is. Um, you know, the, um, the the rest of the world um, is doing this uh, pretty much on label, uh, according to the way the trials were done. 
The one country that has made a decision to do it differently is the UK, um, and they did this first. They made a decision early on to space their doses three months apart. You know, again, um, extrapolating and, and taking that risk that it would still be effective. And we're starting to get real-world data from the UK from that really population-level experiment. They've, they've done that. And uh, that's helpful for the rest of the world. And, you know, as we learn more things, we can continue to modify our own decisions based on that data as it comes in. Um, and what we have right now is, is good data, you know, with spacing those doses up to two months apart. But to go to four really puts us out in a, you know, uh, in an area where, where, where we're alone, um, where others aren't doing that. And, um, you know, we're going to see what the, what the, what things look like based on that. We're, we're doing that experiment here in Canada. And, uh, it may very well turn out to, um, you know, to, to be the right decision and, uh, you know, to get more people vaccine and, and to protect more people early, which is the basis for doing this. But, it comes with risk, and it comes with risk around that you know, we simply don't have data, we don't have evidence that it's going to be as effective. And that's, you know, only something we'll know looking back after doing this. Just to, to recap that, the bottom line is that uh, the evidence that NASI's looking at is based on two months. The vaccine, the first dose of the vaccine was 92% effective after two months, and they're stretching that to four months, and who knows, right? That's right. Uh, I, I have another question, and this is probably an extrapolation, but we know that older people have weakened immune systems. Do you think that stretching this out in this way poses a greater danger to older people who are those most at risk of severe illness and death to begin with? Yeah, well, you know, that's where there, that, that's where there is higher risk. The quality of the immune response might be... Um, reduced in, in elderly individuals and in other immunocompromised individuals. And that's where that second dose really helps them. And, you know, even when Ontario decided to go from sort of on label the 28 days to push that out to 35 days or from 21 to 35 days, they actually didn't do that in the long-term care homes um, and decided to continue to administer that on, you know, on label so I don't know what the provinces will do. I don't know what Ontario is going to do um, in those groups, whether they, you know, an extension to four months will also apply. Um, but there is some, you know, heightened risk there that that first dose won't be as protective. And if you're, you know, remain vulnerable for a longer period of time, obviously there's a higher level of risk there. I also- again, you know, we're, it's a lot of extrapolation and unknowns. And, you know, there's there's strong immunologists and epidemiologists making good um, predictions about what might happen. But, you know, the, the, I come from the research community. We like to have evidence. We like to have data. And, and we like to gather that under the conditions of trials where things are well controlled and where, where that can be interpreted. So that's, that's what I wish we had. Yeah, I have a question about another NASI decision, and that's on AstraZeneca and not using it in, in people over 65. And that's what they recommended, though they made that recommend, that recommendation just as Germany and France reversed that and said, actually, the real world, world data shows that it's fine for people over 65. Do you have a view of that? Yeah, well, this is what, you know, why I, why I said I was a bit surprised by their, their recommendation, because it, it does contrast with that one. Um, you know, the, in that, in the trial with AstraZeneca, there weren't a lot of individuals that were over 65 and, and NASI took a conservative approach and said, you know, the clinical trial data just isn't there. And that's why we're making this recommendation. But, um, you know, there is real world data suggesting it's effective in other, other places. And as you say, France and Germany have reversed course there. Um, and I think, you know, all of the evidence suggests that, uh, this vaccine is, is, equally effective and equally safe in, in that population of individuals. So, um, you know, NASI may revisit that. I hope they do. And my, my real concern around all of this is that is, is around the, you know, the trust with the general public on the decisions that are being made and the basis for them. It's, you know, vaccine hesitancy is a real issue. And um, we want to reassure as many people as we can uh, around the need to get uh, these vaccines, the safety of the vaccines and, they, they really are our way out of this.
do you think that political considerations uh, crept in? I mean, in terms of getting everyone vaccinated by the end of September, which is the prime minister's promise. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think political um, you know issues factor into just about every decision it, it, that that gets made. Um, it's hard to parse all of that out. So, you know, I think what was sort of considered aspirational six months ago is, is, is considered inadequate now. And you've seen the U.S. wants to have everyone done by May. And I think we'll continue to see pressure to push those timelines up. And I think that's part of what's driving this the change in the in the timing of the of the two doses now, too, is simply to try and and get more vaccine to, to more people earlier because of the same kind of pressure. I hope everybody gets a chance to get their vaccine as soon as possible. Uh, we hope so, too. Thank you so much. Okay, so we've got to take a break. I'm going to give the numbers out before we go to break. The rest of the show will be devoted to various aspects of the vaccine rollout. We want to hear from you. Have you got a shot? Are you waiting to get a shot? Uh, where are you at on that? What do you think of the way things are happening? We're actually going to be focusing on one bright spot here in Toronto. Uh, so the numbers before we go to break, 416 toll-free 1-866-744-740. And we will have more on this very important topic when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. People over 80 who live in the community are now included in the top priority list for getting vaccinated. But it really depends on where you happen to live. Most seniors in Toronto are out of luck as public health continues to focus on healthcare workers and the homeless. And the promised central booking system is still not up and running. But there are a few bright spots with some local health teams and hospitals going out into the community on their own and getting this done. Dr. Fia, sorry, Dr. Tia Pham is the lead physician at Southeast Toronto Family Health Team and a member of the East Toronto Health Partners. And she is on a team that is doing just that. Welcome, Dr. Pham. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, Good morning, uh, everyone. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay, so uh, tell us uh, what you are able to do and in which communities. Yeah, so I'm a family doctor in East Toronto. And when you've looked at the city map of Toronto and of Ontario, in fact, East Toronto and West Toronto have been particularly hard hit with COVID-19. So uh, we, for the last year, have really been uh, making it our priority to protect our whole neighborhood and think of it really of our community of 350,000 as a small village in the big city of Toronto. And so uh, that's been our activity for the whole last year, first really making testing easily accessible to everyone. So no barrier testing. Um, And we've gone into all of the areas so that people could just walk in and didn't have to line up anywhere. Where, um, and have expanded that to the schools as well, in fact. And now the same approach we've taken to vaccinating. So we were the first to really have vaccinated all of the nursing homes and the retirement homes in our neighborhood. And we've been eager and waiting as a partnership between everyone hospital, community agencies, and all of the primary care providers. So that's all of our family docs and organized clinics so that we could deliver shots into arms with everyone else as soon as we get uh, our hands on it. And so uh, that's the beginning of it now, yesterday. Have, first have, time. have you been vaccinating people over 80? Uh, yes, I was, you know, I launched our first ever um, primary care clinic, I think, in all of Toronto. But I think uh, North York General with their family health team took suit today. And I think Scarborough should come soon as well. But yes, we were very busy yesterday vaccinating our 80 plus population and we went by age down. So I think our oldest one was 100 or 101. Wow. And um, people were just in tears. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we called, we had a couple of extra doses left over and we called people and they came in last minute. Um, Everyone was just ecstatic. 
And so uh, was this a mobile clinic or was it set up in, in a community mm-hmm. center? Yeah, we have actually all kinds of different ways of really trying to get everyone. So for the last couple of weeks, we've had mobile teams going out to to all of the group homes, congregate setting, Toronto community housing, where we have predominantly seniors. Um, and today, uh, yesterday was the first time really in my family practice clinic, the Southeast Toronto Family Health Team, where uh, we essentially just had our own patients over the age of 80, but also some of our community clinic partners who just aren't uh, set up properly for a larger community drive. And we had their um, uh, over 80 population come over to our clinic um, in Wood Green, one of the agencies arranged for transportation to bring them over to my clinic as well. So that was yesterday. Um, yeah, that's that sounds great. I mean, uh, honestly, uh, it really seems to come down to where people live, even inside the city. And I know that people who live, you know, more or less in, in Midtown Toronto uh, are very frustrated because they can't book, they can't get, and, uh, you know, um, the... the the guidance is that age is is the biggest risk factor, but yet it seems that you know every other group, and they may be worthy, is is getting ahead of older people in the line. You know, we have people here calling and saying, you know, why is my thirty year old massage therapist getting a shot before I do? Well, I think you certainly addressed some of the, you know, the um, frustration that I think all of us are feeling because we know that we need to vaccinate, we need to vaccinate as fast as possible, and particularly, obviously, everyone over the age of 80, and then we walk down from there. So uh, that's why we certainly, as family physicians who we know, all of our patients have been eagerly waiting for more vaccine to come into Toronto. Uh, And yeah, my hope certainly by us being the first clinic yesterday is that we're not the first, we're only the first, but not the last. So okay. With so, that kind of leadership, with that kind of leadership, uh, this week I'm hoping exactly that all over Toronto we can say to other colleagues, and we have a full network of you know primary care clinics and primary care providers, that it'll just spread like a wildfire from there together with our partners, uh, hospital partners, who you know have um, access to the vaccines, um, and our you know public health um, partners that. It'll spread from there and we share what we've learned um, so that we essentially can have everyone else march um, and spread it all of, uh, you know, over the couple of uh, weeks now um, across Toronto. Okay, let's bring in Dr. Gerald Evans. He's chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University. Hi, Dr. Evans. Hi there, Libby. How are you? Fine. Uh, So how's it going in Kingston? Have you been able to start vaccinating people over 80? Uh, they have not at the moment done that, but what I do know is that they have already begun uh, setting up their appointments to launch that uh, uh, when uh, when the, the time hits, which is right now sort of a date of around March 15th. Uh, so in the meantime, uh, Kingston has not received a lot of vaccine. Uh, we are a, an area with low community prevalence. Uh, there has been vaccine that's arrived that's been given out to long-term care, obviously, and long-term care staff essential caregivers, and then uh, now the hospital and the community health care providers are being included. But the, uh, the targeting of the, those individuals over 80 is still uh, about, uh, about 10 days away. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there's a lot of frustration here in Toronto. Of course, we are in the red zone, and uh, it seems that it, it, for people over 80, it's frustrating because uh, depending on where they live, if they're in York region or if they're in Hamilton, they have started to get vaccinations. Also in Mississauga, we just uh, were hearing from Dr. Pham in East York. But, you know, if you're uh, around the middle of Toronto, you can't register you can't get yeah and and you know this patchiness really is a is a reflection of the fact that we haven't gone into a uniform system across the province uh, that's waiting for the portal to be up and running and we're being told it has a start date of March 15th I actually applaud uh, all those that are doing efforts with vaccine available in their units to get those people immunized that the, those community uh, dwelling uh, elderly individuals I think that's 
an absolutely laudable thing to do. But unfortunately, it creates, as you say, sort of this kind of a mosaic here out there where uh, uh, I have a sister who's over 80. She lives in Toronto. She can't get the vaccine, but she has friends who live a little further west, and they're they're able to get in, and some of them have been vaccinated. Some of them already have appointments. So I, I, I think there's a real reflection of the fact that, you know, th- there, there was a lot of time because procurement of vaccine in Canada has been, I, I would say, uh, uh, a little bit challenging. That's probably being kind. It's been a bit actually dismal. Um, and yeah. we had all this time to really get moving on on getting these things put into place. And I am I still kind of am a bit surprised that we've been a bit slow. Well, you know, it's some, some things I find really strange. I mean, the province says the reason that the portal isn't up is because they want to make sure it's not going to crash. It's going to crash when tens of thousands of people try to get on at once. And the longer the lead time, the better the chance that people will get through and get their appointment. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right in that. That's the, that's the reason we're being told that it's being delayed till the, the 15th. And I, I have to sort of say, as a non-tech person, I think I agree with you. When you're going to get demands of 100,000 people trying to hit that server at once, there's likely to be a big uh, jam uh, a log jam going on trying to trying to get onto that portal and and the result of which of course is that we're facing the very subject we're talking about today which is this really trying to get it out and i think it's important to really understand uh, and i totally agree with the priorizing elderly individuals and i would say actually but they're not really being priorized every group that puts their hand up is getting a shot before them. We have uh, police officers, young, healthy police officers. I have people telling me their massage therapists are getting vaccinated before them. Uh, It's, uh, you know, I'm not saying that these groups who are on the front lines aren't worthy, but they are less likely to die. The national guidance from NACI was do it by age. We're not doing that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, because If your aim is to reduce deaths and hospitalization, severe illness, that's exactly the group that you need to target. What we're seeing, though, is some models that are being presented, and I've seen a number of them from other provinces, from other parts of the world, that have actually shown that a strategy of prioritizing those seniors and at the same time prioritizing other groups, which are going to result in a reduction in transmission, is going to give us the biggest effect. But I do understand the frustration... And I, again, I have a sister who's over 80 in Toronto, and, you know, they're really anxious to get their vaccine, and I think we should get that vaccine to them. Procurement has been a huge problem. If we had a lot of vaccine, I don't think we'd be facing quite as much of this, and we'd probably have the system up and running a lot better. A couple of very quick questions uh, uh, for you. Again, nasty decisions. So first, they said they're not going to use AstraZeneca, or uh, and the province has said they're not going to use AstraZeneca on people over 65. Is that going to put older people even more towards the back of the line? Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I was totally in agreement with my NASI colleagues, and I know, I know many of them. Uh, the, the reason that they said that is that there was not evidence from the AstraZeneca trials of having a sufficient number of people over 65 to comment on its effectiveness. But we do know that when it was used in Britain and, uh, and in Scotland, that the fact of the matter is, is it works in those individuals. And I think if we have vaccine, we have AstraZeneca, I would see potentially a reversal of that decision because it, it certainly seems to work in the real world. Okay, well, yeah. And speaking of, of evidence, we just had a, an interview with Dr. Brad Waters. Uh, this stretching the interval to four months, there is not evidence for that, especially for older people. Yeah, older people are the challenge in the interval change. But I'll say this. We do have a very good evidence uh, in some jurisdictions that extending that interval does not create adversity in terms of that effectiveness of response within the first about 60 days. The, um, the other thing is, is that we know from vaccine science, and this is pretty well established, that uh, having an interval out of about three or four months actually gives you a more durable response. And when we're talking about second doses, we're always talking about making sure that the response we get lasts for a long time and doesn't sort of peter off. So the one caveat in that is exactly what you said, Libby, which is that Older people tend to have less vigorous responses to any vaccine you give them. So it's a generic problem. And ultimately, you need that second dose to kind of augment that, that primary response. And those are, that's the group that's a little bit trickier in. But I would say right now, I'm very confident that extending and optimizing that interval out longer than the 21 and 28 days, which were an artificial construct of the studies that were done with the mRNA vaccine, is a reasonable 
uh, and smart thing to do, and it's going to allow us to get a lot more doses into people, which is going to have an overall better effect uh, in terms of reducing case numbers. Okay, Dr. Gerald Evans and Dr. TFM, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, um, I'm just trying to decide if we should break now or start uh, our next conversation. Let's take a break. When we come back on the other side of the break, Chief Matthew Pegg of Toronto, and he is the head of uh, the emergency management for the city. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As we have been discussing, there have been a number of decisions this week which will have an impact for the plans for the vaccine rollout here in Toronto. So here for an update on what we can expect, Fire Chief Matthew Pegg, the city's head of emergency management during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you so much for taking the time, Chief Pegg. Uh, you're very welcome, Libby. Uh, so, first of all, one of the things we've been addressing here is a, a, a lot of frustration on the part of uh, people in the community over 80. If they're in the middle of Toronto, they're they're out of luck. They're nowhere near their vaccine. If if they're in Mississauga or East York, they have a better shot at it. W- what do you say to them? I, I think first and foremost, I, I want to acknowledge that frustration, and and I certainly appreciate it and it's something that uh, that we're all feeling that is the the direct result of uh simply not having a vaccine availability at this point in time and libby i think it's important for to continue to to uh, explain and for people to understand we the the government of canada approves and procures all the vaccine and then it is provided to us via the province of ontario so the situation we're sitting in right now is um, we are vaccine limited. So there are, of course, some. Uh, yesterday, that we reported in the, the media or the press conference that uh, there were actually 14 hospital and healthcare partner clinics that were operating. That's great news. And those hospital-operated clinics and healthcare partner-operated clinics are simply doing, um, they are administering the doses that have been provided to them or allocated to them through the province of Ontario in accordance with the provincial prioritization framework. And that, great news, as of, I believe, the 14th of February it was, the province of Ontario included uh, residents over the age of 80 in that prioritization framework. And as a result of that, that's why we're seeing uh, some of those, some of the hospital partner and healthcare partner clinics beginning to take advantage of that and beginning to immunize some of our people over 80. Um, that will... Um, expand greatly once the once the uh, quantity of vaccine that is available to the province and then of course available through the province to the city of Toronto once that increases we'll see that uh, increase very quickly well um, again and uh, uh, there's a lot of frustration because a lot of people in that age bracket which is uh, the age bracket where people are most likely to suffer severe illness or death uh, you know they're watching their 30 year old massage therapists get vaccinated before them um, but uh, just to the AstraZeneca decision, so uh, the province has said that for now anyway, it's not going to use AstraZeneca on the older population. Will that uh, stretch the time that older people, will that put them more towards the back of the line? Um, no, I don't, I don't anticipate it moving those timelines. And, and it, again, it's important to understand um, the decision, as I understand it, and I'm certainly not a medical doctor, but Health Canada federally is the, the organization that approves vaccine for use. It is Health Canada that has determined that the AstraZeneca vaccine is suitable for use in people between the ages of 18 and 64. So not necessarily a decision that uh, that's not the province making that operational decision. That's a medical decision based on um, well, no, I actually, that... actually, Health Canada decided it was safe for uh, for people of all ages over 18. And uh, the National Advisory Council on Immunization said there wasn't enough evidence for people over 65. And Ontario, the health minister announced yesterday that uh, Ontario won't be using it 
on that population. So what I'm asking is that unless that's reversed, and it may be, uh, if the fact that this vaccine is not available for people over 65, will that mean they have to wait longer? It means that, uh, so the NACI recommendations, of course, you're right, Libby, inform um, the vaccine prioritization framework that the province administers, and that's what we've seen. So it means that AstraZeneca will be administered in accordance with NACI 18 to 64. And it, the good news is that corresponding with that, we are anticipating the information we have. We're expecting much larger quantities of both Pfizer and Moderna vaccine to arrive in Ontario and then into the city in, in, uh, in the latter part of March and then continuously thereon. So it means uh, not only for, for our residents over the age of 80, but everyone that's waiting for vaccine, we're anticipating larger quantities. And I certainly am expecting that that will mean that we will be able to see greatly increased uh, numbers of vaccines administered shortly. And the, the other thing, and we have not yet heard Ontario's decision on this, but again, NACI yesterday recommended uh, stretching the interval between first and de- second doses for AstraZeneca and Moderna. Uh, so up to four months. So have you started adjusting your plans uh, in case Ontario agrees with that decision? Uh, I'm aware. Certainly our team is aware of those ongoing discussions. Uh, and I, that your information is as current as mine. So uh, I'm not aware of a decision having been reached or direction being provided either. So we're awaiting that decision. Uh, the good news is all of our administration plans, uh, we, we actually engineered the necessary flexibility into all of our processes such that as dosing intervals change uh, in accordance with medical direction, we can very quickly uh, pivot off that and respond to those. So uh, our processes are in place. If, if that decision is made, we'll react accordingly and it won't, uh, I don't see any, any reason whatsoever why it will interrupt or negatively impact our process. Well, I would think it would mean that more people get vaccinated. So how do you do that? Is that you just, uh, you know, change the inputs in a computer program or how does that work? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, it's, it, it would result in more people receiving their first dose quicker, which is great news. And yes, you got it exactly right, Libby. The the province of Ontario manages the, the scheduling system, and it would simply be a programming change in the back end of the system that would extend out the interval between the first and second dose, which would the, the impact of that would be there would be uh, more first dose availability earlier than would have previously been the case. So that's good news. Uh, now, in terms of the, the central booking system, is that your bailiwick or is that uh, the province? It is, it is the province. So we, we, are, um, we are leveraging, we are a client, if you will, of the provincial booking system. Uh, that system, as we've talked about, is, is live. It's actually being pilot tested in a, in a few smaller jurisdictions now. And the indication from the province is that it, it will be in a go-live state or ready to go live uh, on the 15th of March. So uh, the, the latest update I have is that uh, it is in good shape and uh, they're all, all lights are green, if you will, heading for the 15th of March. And, of course, the only thing that will have to happen then will be timing that with the availability of vaccine that comes to the province from the Government of Canada. So lots of logistics to sort out, but uh, all everything looks good at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, people are frustrated that the booking system isn't up now because uh, I, I'm certainly no tech expert, but I think that when everyone tries to get on at once, no matter what they've done in advance, it will crash. Yeah, I certainly hope not. And, and I, I can tell you that I'm, I, I participate in vaccine distribution task force meetings every day. And those, that's the, the team of people that General Hillier leads. And I, you know, while I am no tech expert either, and uh, nor, nor is that a system that I'm responsible for, I can tell you that it is 100% top of mind. Uh, those are discussions that are happening, happening every day. And, and I certainly, uh, I have every confidence that the, that the province is, is putting their full attention to making sure that it, it operates, it operates stable, and uh, that's certainly what I'm hoping for and what we anticipate. Uh, so uh, what would you like to leave us with in terms of older people in the city of Toronto and uh, their wait for getting that shot in the arm? Libby, what, what I, I want to leave everyone with is is first and foremost to say thank you. I know that this has been frustrating. I know that it still is. And I just want, I want everyone to know we are, we and I, I'm speak for me, I am doing my very best 
and our teams are doing our very, very best. And I just want to say a very sincere thank you for the continued patience. There is more vaccine on the horizon, uh, significantly, significantly more vaccine is uh, the way it's been described to us by the province. So that represents hope to me. And, you know, just I ask for continued patience. We're going to get there and I will not stop working. My teams will not stop working until we're until we get there and get everyone vaccinated that wishes to be vaccinated. Okay, Chief Matthew Pegg, thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Okay, uh, we have time to end with a caller who has been waiting patiently. Hi, Helen. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Oops. Cut off. No, you're there. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> um, I just have a um, probably um, not an extremely important question, but it is to me. Um, I will be 75 in the summer. Do you happen to know... When you go to um, register for a vaccine online, um, is it going to be done by the year of birth? I, I believe so. And uh, you will be when hopefully when when things are up and running that uh, you'll have a chance at a vaccine before your next birthday. So you will be uh, in when they get down to the 70 to 75 group. Oh, uh, I think, oh, what, unless oh. they do it by the by the year, but it it's it's going down in five year. Well, no, it's going first is eighty and over, then right. it's seventy five to eighty, then it's seventy to seventy five, and then I, I I think it's going down in six in five year increments. So I actually would be in the seventy five to eighty. Mm, I can't guarantee that. I think you might be 70 to 75. Okay, but, uh, I can't seem to find the information anywhere, but well, the, the, I guess I just apply, and if I'm rejected, I'll know. Well, exactly, and that system isn't up and running yet. No, no, I just looked um, what for what we have in Peel for 80 and over. I looked at the... Yeah, so you can't register there? Uh, no, so, I, I just wanted to see what yeah. the, the form is, but they do ask for the month and date. Yeah. Okay, Helen, we've got to go. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, people, uh, remember Free For All Friday is coming up. If you could not get through or if you have something to say about what you have been hearing here today and all through the week, and that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.